0: as you're... Every Sunday, Lord, we're in desperate need of your word, of your truth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would meet us here in this place, Lord, that your presence would be unmistakable, Lord, and that your spirit would guide us to discover truth, Lord, a truth that um, exists throughout eternity and that you are able to use to change our lives, to conform us, to make us look more like your son. And so I just pray that this morning that as we look at your word as it comes to us in Matthew 25, Lord, that you would you would just speak through your word, use it to shape your people and to who you've called them to be. Lord, we also just pray for the kids as they head off, Lord. I just pray that you would do the exact same thing for them, Lord, I pray as they sit and Sunday school right now and they consider your word um, through different stories and illustrations and as they um, just open up your truth, Lord, I pray that you would use it to build a foundation for which they will build their lives on. Lord, I pray that the children of this church would grow up to love and to fear you, to know you as their Lord and Savior, and to follow hard after you, Lord. And I just pray for those who serve and there today, give them wisdom, speak through them and use them. Um, powerfully towards that end. We thank you for the children of, the church, of this church. What a blessing they are to us, Lord. We thank you for them. What a gift. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, church, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I open up my Bible and uh, I read it, what I soon discover is that as much as I am reading the Bible, the Bible is also reading me. It's also reading me. Oftentimes, there's passages we come across that can be very easy to make sense of. Then there are some passages that we discover along our journey that leave us scratching our heads, wondering what in the world is he saying? There's a handful of passages when I think about um, obviously we want to be a people who is shaped by the entirety of God's word. But there are a few passages in scripture that I my prayer, my hope is would really epitomize who we are Parkview East as a people. And over the years, this passage for me has been one of those. It's been one of those passages that as we look at that it's just been something that that I pray that the truth of this passage would be written across every one of our hearts and it would it would be how we describe ourselves as a people. May we be, this is my prayer for us today. May we as a church be a Matthew 25, 31 to 46 church. This comes to us as a parable, this truth. Now, we're walking through parables this summer. This is probably, of all the parables, the least parabolic, if that's a word, I don't know. It's the least parable of the parables, all right? As you read it, um, you'll see that really the parable itself just lies in verses 32 to 33. Um, The rest of it is factual. It's what is going to happen, all right? So it is, of all the parables, the least parable that we're going to look at. This summer. And as we've talked about parables, really what they are is Jesus himself, when he taught lessons, parables was a device that he used to communicate spiritual truth. Oftentimes he would tell stories that his audience could easily see the scenes and relate to. Oftentimes they were farming stories, they were stories that were very relatable and understandable for his first century audience. And he told these stories in such a way that they would be memorable, that on the surface, you might think, ah, I know what he's talking about, but they would sort of wedge themselves in their conscious, kind of like a rock in your shoe that you just feel over and over and over again. And you think about, you return to time and time again. And as you return to it, you think to yourselves, did I really understand what he was saying? Did I really understand what he meant? Oftentimes, these parables, and certainly this is true today in this parable, oftentimes these parables are confrontational, and oftentimes they're uncomfortable. Now, if you're new here, we're so glad that you're here, and we make a habit of every Sunday morning during this time simply opening up God's word and looking at what God says to us through his word. Sometimes that word leaves us encouraged. Sometimes the word brings to our hearts the comfort that we desperately long for and need. And sometimes that word challenges us. And sometimes, as we look at his word, it's uncomfortable for us to hear. And then there's sometimes... When all of the above is true. When all of those things happen in one section of Scripture. And I would suggest to you this morning, that's precisely what we'll discover in this section of Scripture. You'll feel comforted, you'll feel encouraged, you'll feel challenged, and there will be moments where you likely will feel uncomfortable. And part of the reason for that is because really the main focus, as Lynn mentioned, of our section this morning is that of judgment. This is a passage of judgment. And as we look at judgment, as Jesus talks about the reality of it here, we're gonna look at it in three, as we walk through this passage, sort of three different movements. First, we'll consider together the reality of judgment. Secondly, we will look at the results of judgment. And then third, and finally, we'll consider together the reason for this judgment. So, the reality of judgment. To be sure, th- this is not a popular subject. Or is it? Certainly, judgment is a concept that all of us are interested in. From the small child that cries out, that's not fair, to the enormous crowds that fill Kinnick Stadium this fall who are yelling at the referee, it's a terrible call, give up your calling, you're terrible at this job, and hurling all sorts of insults. They care about judgment. To our courts, to our schools, Media itself confirms we care about judgment. So you should not be surprised that just as we care so much about judgment in this life, we shouldn't be surprised to discover that God believes in judgment in the end of this life. It's exactly what we'll see today in today's parable which is often misunderstood and I would say often misapplied. The first thing that we have to notice about the reality of judgment is that Jesus is very clear. Judgment is coming. Judgment's a reality. It is an inevitability. This is set, the setting of this is the final sort of passage in what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Following a day that's filled with controversy and confrontation, Jesus and his followers leave the temple, they head towards Bethany, and they stop at the Mount of Olives. With this spectacular, majestic view of the temple sort of as the backdrop, Jesus taught them about the future that would be. He talked to them about the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come, he told them parables of readiness how they ought to be ready in light of this judgment. And then finally, sort of the climactic scene is, is this parable of the sheep and the goats. Sections all about future judgment, the judgment that is coming. And, and it's so important to understand that for Jesus to teach this lesson, it's so necessary for his disciples to hear and to understand so that knowing the certain future that might they might be prepared in the present to make sense of their life today. They have to know what's coming in order to know what's expected to live right now, to make sense of reality in today as they know it. A number of years ago, maybe some of you found yourself in a similar position, when derecho was approaching, I had a friend of mine who was in Ames, and he called me and said, or shot me a text message and said, hey, a storm's coming your way, it's a doozy. All right, and I had no idea. We were here at school preparing for the fall, sort of getting ready for uh, school to, to get started. Maybe it was, it was beginning of yeah, that's when it was. And uh, I saw that note right away. There's about a, ha- a dozen of us are here, so we kind of went to the internal part of the school, and the storm, you could feel it approaching and upon us, and everybody kind of hunkered down and looked outside, and we could see there's some black locust trees that are out the front, and you could see the whole, lo- like, earth around the locust tree, like, just swelling and then going down, like it was almost getting ripped out of its roots. The point was, he communicated to me in advance, this is what your future looks like. And the reason he did that was so that we could make preparation today in expectation of what was coming our way, right? It's the exact same thing with Jesus. This is a demonstration. This is an act of love for him to teach and to show, to reveal what the future holds some of us may not like these passages. Talk about, they might say, the good stuff that Jesus had to say. Let's hear about the forgiveness and the newness of life. But the reality is this is an act of love from the Savior, that he reveals to us what's coming our way so that we know how to live today. To demonstrate the, the inevitability of judgment, Jesus uses a word picture. This, this parable is unique, like I said before, in that it's not really a parable, he uses a picture, an imagery of a shepherd separating sheep from goats. But, but this metaphor is, is simply an illustration for the main point. The, the whole of this section is not a parable. The whole is factual. It is a reality. It is what will take place on the day that Jesus returns. So judgment is inevitable. Second thing you know, need to know about the reality of judgment is that Jesus says here in the parable that he himself is the judge When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus refers to himself here in the parable as the Son of Man. This is a a, a phrase that this Old Testament, taken from the Old Testament, this title was one to whom God gives all authority and all power. The son of man, he says, comes in judgment. He's, he's reaching back into Daniel chapter seven. He's, he's reaching into a part of scripture that, an Old Testament part of scripture that all of his disciples, his listeners would have easily understood what he is suggesting, what he is saying by calling himself the son of man. He's calling himself the judge. He comes with angels, the text says. Same language used back in 24, verses 30 to 31. These are angelic, heavenly beings. They could be mistaken as nothing other than that. Jesus is the judge. I don't know if you can feel the challenge. The challenge, the way that we view Jesus. You know, oftentimes we can be quick to run to and to hang on to, sort of an over-sentimentalized version of who Jesus is. Just want the nice guy, Jesus. Okay, maybe, maybe when we think of who Jesus is, our mind goes immediately to that baby in the manger born on Christmas Day. That's an accurate view of who Jesus was, but maybe that's only who we think of. Or maybe when we think of Jesus, all we're tempted to want to think about is the wonderful sayings and good teachings that he offered. The wonderful miracles that he performed and the healings that he performed when he walked on this earth Maybe even where minds go directly to the cross and to Good Friday and to the picture of a suffering servant who didn't resist but who laid down his life like a sacrificial lamb. All of these are true of Jesus. But if our understanding of who Jesus is stops with these, then we have seriously miscalculated underestimated who Jesus is and what his role in this universe is. Jesus will return, and when he does, his position will be that of king and judge, and it will be unmistakable. The whole world will know. And finally, we see that all will be judged. So... Judgment's inevitable, it's coming, Jesus is the judge, and the Bible says here in this passage that every single person will be judged by King Jesus. Look at the text. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. The, The picture that Jesus paints is that of universal judgment. It's all the nations. Some have Debated over the years, whether this was referring specifically to the church or to all people more generally. And when you look at the parable as a whole, the, the nations, we discover, contain both righteous and wicked. Therefore, the only way to really understand all is that it is all people who will be judged by King Jesus. The Lord is Lord of all, and when he returns, he will summon and judge all. Okay? So that's the reality of judgment. The Bible's clear. Judgment's coming. Jesus is the judge, and every human being will be judged by King Jesus. Secondly, what is the result of this judgment? Well, we see that in the parable itself. Look at verses 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. The the image that Jesus leans into and and calls his disciples to envision is that of a shepherd separating sheep from goats. Now in Palestinian villages, they would have had both sheep and goats and oftentimes they would have been sort of intermingled together. And this was a problem because the 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 sheep had more value than the goats, okay? They had more value because they had their wool was more precious. The goat's wool was more coarse and of less value. And also, likewise, the sheep had sort of a specific way that they need to be cared for. They had different requirements for how they slept and how they milk. And the, the way you cared for the sheep was different than how you cared for the goats. And so, as Jesus is telling the story, they can easily begin to picture the scene of a shepherd separating sheep from the goats. And it's so important for us to notice that When the shepherd does this, there's only two categories. There's only two groups within the herd. There are the sheep and the goats. The whole herd is brought before the shepherd just like the whole world will be brought before King Jesus and there are only two groups, the sheep and the goats. Same with Jesus. Two groups. When Jesus returns, he takes his place on the throne. All the nations will be brought before him. Every person in this room will stand before King Jesus. And he will assume his rightful role as king and as judge. And on that day, in his judgment, there will be two kinds of people. Only two destinations. Some... Goes on to say, will inherit the kingdom that was prepared for them from the beginning of time. And others will be sent to everlasting judgment, never intended to be theirs. So, sheep and goats, some will receive, we see in verse 34, the glad hearted, kind welcome of Jesus. Some will hear their name. Called. and what will follow will be the most unbelievable invitation your ears have ever heard come inherit the kingdom he calls you blessed the sheep he says you belong to me come Be with me, your king, your good shepherd, the one who loved you, the one who made you, the one who laid down his life to purchase you. Come to me. The Father calls you blessed. You will inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. This is unbelievable from before the foundation of the world. Do you see how much the shepherd values the sheep? Long before he set the foundation of the world in place, he had you on his mind and in his heart. And when you stand before him, you don't stand before him on the final day, cowering in fear, but ready to collapse into his arms. There's just no invitation like this that exists out there. Some of you were invited to church today. That's great news. This is 10 million times better than that. That invitation will far exceed anything that we can offer on this earth. We're going to have a potluck following service. Guess what? You are all invited. Weatherby Park, right after this. Have some food. What a wonderful invitation. It compares nothing to what you will hear and I will hear as sheep when we stand before Jesus on the final day. It's what our souls long for. But there's another group called goats. The complete opposite will be true for the goats. They will receive something that is so completely terrifying. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Remember, the sheep were blessed. The goats, he says, he cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For the goats, a much different result. Eternal punishment away from the creator of the universe, apart from Jesus. The goats' company will be the devil and his angels. And this punishment says in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, will last forever. The text is very clear. This is a terrifying reality. And it's a reality that some will hear. Depart from me. Depart from me. C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. There are two groups of people. That's what Jesus says about his judgment. The results, it's one or the other. A heavenly creature or hellish creature. Parkview East, the truth is we are all making a choice every single day. Turning the core of who we are either into a person of eternal degradation and shame or a person of unfathomable, unfathomable glory in heaven. Matthew 25 comes to us this very morning and says, choose now. Don't wait. Make the choice now. This text is given to us not just to say this is what is waiting. This text comes to us as God's grace saying in light of what's coming, make your decision while you still have it. Choose glory. Finally, the reason for judgment. And this is perhaps the part of the text that is, I would say, the most controversial. There's been some controversy over the years in the last couple of uh, points that I've had as far as the reality of judgment, what judgment looks like in the end. Some would argue, is it eternal punishment? What is hell, the nature of hell? Lots of different controversy over this, but of all the places where the most controversy comes in this text, it's about the reason for the judgment. The scene ends with the righteous and wicked departing to their respective destinations. The wicked face eternal punishment while the righteous rejoice and take part in the new heavens and new earth promised by God for his people. So what's the difference? Why the separation? What's the reason for this great separation? Like a shepherd looks at the wool and the behavior which distinguishes the sheep from the goat, what does the great king look at? What criteria does he use to judge the difference? How does he recognize the sheep? It's a question that if we bought the first two points, we should be completely invested in knowing how to answer, (laughs) If we believe judgment is coming, that there's two options, then the next question that we could we should be asking is how do I ensure that I'm a sheep? <laughs> well, Jesus doesn't keep us guessing. He gives us the answer. Verses 34 to 35, and it's a a pattern that repeats itself. You see it repeat once when he talks about the sheep. He repeats it again when he talks about the goats. Remember, verses 34 to 40, we look just specifically at the sheep. Remember, the sheep are those who are destined for eternal life. They're inheriting the kingdom of God. He says that the reason and the basis of this judgment, that the judgment he levels on them, is this... Specifically, how they showed love and mercy to Jesus. How does he recognize the sheep? He does so on a basis of how they have showed love and mercy to Jesus. That's what he says. Look at the text. For I was hungry and you gave me food. For I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What's the basis for Jesus separating the sheep from the goats? How the sheep responded to Jesus. That's what he says a list of six different actions. What's so fascinating about this and really so unusual is every time he repeats the six, he repeats the six fully. Four times, four different times in this one section, you hear these six things repeated. Six different acts of mercy. And these acts of mercy are not unlike different parts of scripture which highlight the need and design for God's people to be a compassionate people. Showing love, extending mercy to others in need. You see these all throughout Scripture. In fact, each of these items are reinforced all throughout the Bible and will also be at the very core of what kingdom life looks like. But what is so fascinating about this parable, what's so interesting about it, is who these acts of love and mercy are shown to. Jesus says, I, I, Was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. Jesus is saying that this list is a description of how the sheep treated him. Now, as you continue to read through, you'll see that there is not just confusion as we listen to it, but there's also confusion as he tells the story. The sheep are confused. Their response is when? When did we see you, Lord? When did we see you hungry and give you bread? I have no recollection of when this happened. When did we see you naked or in prison and visit you? When did this happen? The king's reply is shocking, and I would say often misunderstood. Look at verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it. When did we see you this way? I'll tell you when. When you fed one of the least of these my brothers. You did it to me. So the question comes, again, if we are invested in this, if sort of eternity hangs in the balance, we should immediately be asking ourselves, who is one of the least of these, my brothers? What does he mean by that? What what is he saying? Is this a reference to all people? Uh, everyone in the, in the world who's hurting, who's hungry throughout humanity? Is that who he's referring to? Now, many social gospel proponents and liberation theology advocates would say, yes. I would say, no, it's not who he's talking about. He is specifically referring to his people, to Christ's people. If you just look at the language, everywhere throughout the book of Matthew, these phrases are used. Whenever Matthew refers, uses this phrase in Greek that would have been referring to brothers and actually brothers and sisters. He would have been referring specifically to those who are biologically brothers and sisters or those who are spiritually brothers and sisters. Every time he uses that word, he uses it in that context, either biologically brothers and sisters or spiritually brothers and sisters. Same with the least of these. He uses it just a handful of times throughout his writing, and when he uses it, he, he means either literally small children or more specifically His disciples his believers, his people. Now, what I'm not saying is that we as Christians shouldn't care for the broken, feed the hungry, heal the sick, visit the imprisoned, take care of the, those who are hurting in our world who are not believers. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. In fact, if I wanted to make a case for that, there are other places in the Bible I could go to. I could go to Luke 10. We went there already, thinking about the Good Samaritan. You could go to a number of different places, Galatians 6.10, Isaiah 58. You could go all throughout the Bible and see that God wants us to care for his image bearers regardless of who they are. That case could be made. But here, in Matthew 25, the focus is specifically on ministering to and caring for the needy among God's people. It's a similar logic to what he lays down in Matthew 10, 40 to 42, when he talks about when when they're welcoming you as a messenger of Jesus, a messenger of me, they are also implicitly welcoming the message itself. It's the same idea, and he uses the same language. What this should force us to come to terms with What I believe Jesus is trying to show us in this parable is just how closely Jesus identifies with his followers. If you're a follower of Jesus, this should comfort the mess out of you this morning. Jesus identifies with the sheep. And when we see that truth, we come to grips with another profound implication that our treatment of our brothers and sisters in Christ applies to Jesus himself. It's as if Christ, it's not as if it is, Christ has hidden himself among his people right here in our very midst. Those chosen by God to reflect his glory into a dark and fallen world, if we turn away, or if we neglect, or if we refuse to care and love one another, it's as if we are refusing to care and love Jesus himself. Now, what's so fascinating about this text, and what I think is really sort of a key to understanding exactly what's going on, is that when he begins to, to explain the story, that the response in the story is that the, sh- the sheep, those, those who are saying, well, there, 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 there's, a, there's a surprise written all over their face. Likewise, there's a surprise over the goat's face. G- Jesus, King, when did we see you hungry and, not, and refuse you bread? When did we see you naked and not offered to clothe you? I don't understand what you're talking about. With the sheep, the exact same thing. When did this happen? Both groups ask the exact same question. When did this happen? This is such a crucial point of the text. And I would think that, you know, I think ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that your hearts and your lives have been so transformed that you have been given a new nature And caring for one another, loving one another, just becomes natural. Like an apple tree bearing apples. It's what it does. (laughs) By nature, that's why it's an apple tree. Because it produces fruit. When? When did we do this? could just imagine it playing out and you know if, if it were to just to play out in a local church's context when did we see you hungry when did we care for you in and, and, and the king's response do you, do you remember that time when there was that person in your community group who lost a loved one and you and others came around that dear sister and encouraged her brought food to her do you remember that? Oh, I do remember that actually, yes. Do you, do you remember that time when you volunteered for, I don't know, a year to take a lesson plan and go into a children's class and teach them about the Bible and about me? Do you remember when you did that? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> do you remember when there was kids who wanted to go to camp And it was hard, it was expensive, they couldn't quite afford it, and so you gave some money at a bake sale at a church so that those people could go to camp. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, now you say I do remember that. Do do you remember that time when there was that dear brother of your congregation who passed away and he had kids that needed to be cared for? He had a, a wife that needed to be supported and loved and encouraged, do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. It's just so natural, because it's who the sheep are. To be clear, our eternal destination is not determined by our works or by our fruit. It's not what he's saying. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Bible's very clear. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law or by acts of love, compassion, and mercy, but through faith in Jesus alone. Earlier in this text, you'll notice that the eternal life that the sheep receive, he says that they have inherited it. They have not merited it. They have not earned it. It's not as if their acts of love and justice and mercy and compassion and care is what earned them the right to be received the designation of sheep. It's been inherited. It's been given. And it's important for us to remember, Tim Keller says this well. Well, Why we are not while we are not saved by fruit, we are also not saved by fruitless faith. True, genuine faith in Jesus. If it does not have works, it is dead. It's dead. Turns out that the parable of the sheep and goats is a parable of gospel transformation. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to be changed by grace. And his decision to call us sheep, to welcome us into eternal kingdom with him comes down to whether or not we have received the love of Christ and been transformed by the love of Christ. This is a story of gospel transformation. Ultimately, what Jesus is calling you and me to do is he's calling us to do precisely what he has done for us. Jesus, he himself is the king of the parable, the one who left his throne in heaven and who came to us, his needy, broken people. And when he came, do you know what he found? That king found us hungry. And he offers to feed us with the bread of life. When he came, he found us thirsty and he, he offers to quench us with, a, with a water, the living water, so that we will never be thirsty again. When he came, he found us, you and me, strangers, wanderers, cut off from the promises of God. And you know what he does? He welcomes us into his family, calls us his own. When he came, he found us naked and alone alone. And he offers to close us, not with sin and shame, but in robes of his righteousness. When he came, he found us sick. He gives up his life on the cross to heal us. When he came, he found us in prison, bound by guilt and shame. And he visits us and offers to loose our chains and set us free. He did all of this, not because we could ever pay him back, not because we have something to offer him, but simply out of his love and mercy and compassion for us. Church, the truth is the grace of this good shepherd changes us. When we receive the grace of King Jesus, that grace overflows to Jesus, that love overflows to Jesus and to others in ways that are incredibly simple, totally ordinary, barely recognizable for those who have just given their life to following Jesus. It's just in your bones. It's in your DNA. It doesn't seem special. It just feels sort of everyday. And what I think we want more than anything here at Parkview East is that we would be a people ultimately who've been changed by this grace and who do good to Jesus' people without even thinking about it. Pastor and follow said this about this passage, it's not as if the sheep in this parable recognize Jesus in the least of these. This is the crucial part. It's that ultimately the sheep recognize themselves. So as we think about what it looks like to love and to care for, to extend grace and mercy to one another, the truth is it's, it's because we are a people who are in desperate need of it ourselves. We are hungry, we are thirsty. We are in desperate need. And so it should just be natural for us to take the grace and the mercy that we've received from Jesus and to let us, our lives be conduits where it extends out to the people around us. And could you imagine what a difference that makes? I mean, this is how Jesus has wired it so that as we live this sort of life of love together in community, it becomes a compelling community that other people look at and say, there is something going on there that is supernatural and unexplainable apart from the spirit of God at work. My prayer is that when King Jesus comes and we find ourselves standing before him, That all that we would have done will be sort of hazy and cloudy in our mind because we haven't done it to earn anything. But simply, because you've taken the character of the king as you've been transformed by his love. Will you let the love of Jesus so invade your life that it dramatically transforms you and the way you treat everyone around you? Could you imagine what God would do with a community like that? Who doesn't wanna be a part of that? I love this church. You don't wanna be a part of that? I, I do wanna be a part of that. Who wants to be on that? I do, great, okay. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for um, just your word this morning. And um, Lord, we just pray that you would, Lord, we ask that you would answer that prayer, that you would help us to be a, a body of believers, who take on the character of the king. Lord, that we will be so transformed by your love, Lord, that loving one another will just be so natural for us. Help us to be looking at our life and considering ways that we can extend love and mercy and care to um, those who you have laid down your life for. You have shown us your love in such a huge way, Lord, and I just pray that all of our life would be, um, Lord, just imitating that. Give us the strength, the ability to do that. Help us to die to self, Lord, in that process. We love you, and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.